I can still say good morning. <laughs> so, today we're diving into Proverbs 5, which is a warning against adultery. So this is like the PG-13 section. It actually probably could even go R-rated if we really wanted to dive deep on it. But it's one of the things I appreciate about the Lord and I appreciate about His Word is He's not afraid to address real issues. He's really willing to go after them. So as, as we engage with Proverbs 5, I want to just take a, a quick second, step back, and look at um, where we are as far as what Proverbs is. Which is Proverbs are dealing with probability, not promises. These aren't guarantees. We can't look at something and say, well, it says if I do this, then this will be the outcome. We're dealing with a probability, which is saying if I do this, this will probably be the outcome. Because Proverbs is really focused on the development of our personal character. A lot of other scripture, like a lot of the Psalms talk about God and His character. But Proverbs is saying if you want to be if you want to walk in righteousness, this is what your character should look like. This is how you should approach it. Or it often does is it compares and contrasts and says, either you're walking in righteousness or you're walking in the world, and they're going to look very different, and the outcomes will most likely be different. But good, righteous people have bad things happen to them. And people that are malicious and self-centered have good things happen to them. And so this isn't a promise that being righteous will make life easy. And it's not saying that necessarily all people who are self-seeking are going to have horrible things happen to them. But in the end, you can be a righteous person in the midst of persecution and have peace because of what God's done with you. So it's about which character are you going to choose. And I have found... And I have experienced that when I am walking it more in righteousness, even the difficulties aren't as bad. Among other things, I know in that moment I am not alone. Another thing that's interesting about Proverbs 5 is it's really talking about adultery. Adultery, pornography, sexual addiction, these are not new issues in society. <laughs> 3,000 years ago, Solomon was talking about it. And when he was talking about it, they were not new issues. So adultery and besetting sin have been with us since the fall. And they're often rooted in pain and hurt in our lives, which are created in part because of the fact we live in a fallen world with people with free will who do things to us that aren't right, they aren't fair, and they aren't just. And we don't always respond to them well. Now... As he writes this proverb, it's written to his son or sons, but that does not mean this is not applicable for women. The voice of it is to sons, but the truth in it, the wisdom in it, the, the things that we can glean for our character is to sons and daughters. So this isn't for half of us or part of us, this is for all of us here today. So I want to talk a little bit about Solomon's perspective. Because he has history about adultery that's very personal. Because his father David, who is a man after God's own heart and king of Israel, when he should have gone off and he should have been fighting with his men, he stayed back and lingered and loitered. And lo and behold, there's a good-looking lady out there on the roof bathing who happens to be Uriah's wife, who's a good friend of his, and she's very attractive. So he invites her in. 
they become intimate, she becomes pregnant, and now David has a problem because he's just committed adultery with a friend's wife and she's pregnant and the only way to cover it up is to try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife but Uriah won't do it because he knows he's in the field and he's not he's not gonna um, let the other people down he has far more integrity in all of this than David does so David can't trick Uriah so he ends up having the commander pull back soldiers in the midst of battle so Uriah is killed in battle David ordered the commander to do that. Therefore, David is not only responsible for adultery with Bathsheba, he's also responsible for murdering a friend. Both of those offenses under Jewish law are a death sentence. David should have been stoned for either of them, let alone both of them. So, Nathan comes along and says to David, tells him a story about this mean, oppressive guy taking this other guy's most precious lamb. And David, being a shepherd originally, really is captivated by the stories and gets, he's angry that this, this man would steal something precious from this other man. And then Nathan said, well, that man is you. You've got to love when the prophet comes in and speaks to you that way. Thankfully, we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant. In any event, David is, David is crushed by this. Um, after the mourning period, David actually married Bathsheba. They have their son, and their son dies. Their son dies because of David's sin. I want to be really careful about this. I am not saying that, that in the, in, under the new covenant that we live in, if we sin, our children will die. This isn't a cause effect. This is a specific circumstance. But the reason I bring it up is Solomon, who is the next child born, to David and Bathsheba's brother, older brother, he never met him because of David and Bathsheba's sin. So Solomon has an intimate connection to what adultery can do to a family. There's a pain and a loss that exists in Solomon when Solomon's born that he probably doesn't even understand. David, in the midst of that, pens the psalm, creating me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your holy presence from me. He know he's done wrong. He know he knows he's blown it. But in the midst of that, God still favors David. God still loves him as a man after his own heart, even though there's consequences, even though David's character has failed in this moment. And the reason I bring that up is there's hope for us when we fail. We're not alone. We are not alone. Now Solomon, he could ask for anything from God, he asked for wisdom. And he received God's wisdom and was the wisest man in the world at that point in time, we believe. And the nation of Israel became so great that it was a center that other people went to, they sent people to, that um, between the blessing from David and from Solomon, we have a great kingdom. And Solomon was so wise, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Most of the men are here shaking their heads saying that's probably not wise. Now, he was not committing adultery because these were wise, but this was not God's design. This was not God's design. And I'm going to submit that Solomon probably had a lot of pain and suffering by having 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know how he managed that. I don't know how I manage one wife sometimes. 
I don't know. How, never mind. I'm going to stop there Bye. <laughs> before I get myself in real trouble. Um, but I, sometimes I don't know. I don't know how to make it work. I don't know the right thing to do. Can you imagine a line of 700 wives chewing you out? Anyway. I don't know how many, but he had many sons and daughters because of this. And even though Solomon made mistakes, and Solomon had pain and hurt in his life, he wanted to impart to his sons and daughters God's wisdom in a way that would help them be more successful. And, and that's, that's what we're seeing in Proverbs as he's writing into this issue. So we start now in Proverbs 5. My son or sons or daughters, be attentive to my wisdom. Now whose wisdom is that? That's not Solomon's wisdom. This is God-given wisdom to Solomon. Which he then says... Incline your ear to my understanding. He has an understanding of this wisdom that God has given him. Even though he has not always walked in it, he does know it. That you may keep discretion. That your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Which is just beautiful poetry for how alluring something we should not engage is in this world. Honey, the sweetest thing they have, which does not go bad. Oil, again, which is something that was highly sought after. That, that there are things in this world that appear very desirable to us that, that are not good for us. The forbidden is not like the forbidden city. The forbidden in this is God saying, if you go there, bad things will happen. We tell our children, don't run in the middle of the freeway because you'll get hit by a car. We forbid them from running in the freeway. That doesn't mean they don't do it sometimes. Or the street, hopefully not the freeway. But, but in the end, she, who was so alluring, is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. That there is, a, there is something in here that instead of being as sweet as sweet can be, it actually is bitter to the point of almost making you want to gag and throw up. And it slices you and cuts you to your core, to your heart, and you're wounded by it when you thought it would be a good thing. Her feet go down to death. Her steps, her, her steps follow the path to Sheol. Now, Sheol is not hell. It's the place of the waiting dead at this point in time. That when they died, they believed you went to Sheol where there was no emotion. There was no goodness. It was dark. People were shades of themselves. There was no joy. There wasn't necessarily evil. Or it wasn't punishment, but there was nothing to delight in. It was the place where you were just dust, for lack of a better way. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. She's walking in the way of the world also. And when we are walking in bad character, we invite other people to join us. Now, Solomon was a man of prestige. His sons and daughters have prestige. Do you think people might want to be taking things from them for their, out of their own self-interest? 
he knows this. Before, before they were born, they were already set up to have people steal from them. Whether it be from them personally and spiritually, or whether it be finances or getting some kind of gain. So he's wanting to protect them. So now we're going to take a little bit of diversion because I want to explain how this works. So we're going to take a look at the brain. Now the reason we're going to the brain is that science has now proved that things in Scripture are true. <laughs> that as science advances, sometimes advances, sometimes the discoveries it makes are pretty remarkable. And the, pain, the brain has three main components. One of them being the cerebellum. It's the autonomous part of your brain. We used to call it the lizard brain when I was a kid. This is what makes sure you breathe. This is what makes sure that, that your heart continues to beat. These are automatic reflexes. And sometimes we can exercise control. It's hard for me to will my heart to stop beating. But I can stop breathing. One of my friends in high school, his younger brother would get so upset he'd stop breathing. He'd hold his breath. He'd turn blue, then he'd pass out, and then he'd start breathing again. That was very traumatic for the parents, but the reality is his, his brain would not let him stop breathing. It wanted to protect the body and keep it going. And then we have the limbic system. This is the seat of our emotions. This is the seat of memories. And this is the seat for arousal. And I mean arousal in the greater sense. Arousal being anything that is pleasurable to us that we enjoy. Whether that enjoyment of it be good or bad, the limbic system houses that, reacts to that, produces chemicals around that. That when we have any hurt or pain in our lives that we want to numb, we will seek some form of arousal, some form of medication to do that. Donuts is a personal favorite. But there are other things that we can reach for, and sexual sin is one of those. Whether that be pornography, um, sexual addiction, there's so many things available. But it's not the only one. For me, that wasn't a big issue. For me, it was anger and rage, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. And then we have our prefrontal cortex. This is why we give our kids grace, because theirs is still developing. It doesn't finish until you're somewhere between 25 and 28 years old. And this is where complex thought rests. This is where we plan complex processes. This is where we do our decision making. This is how we moderate our behavior. This is where our, our, our personality is expressed from. It has control over our emotions as long as it is engaged. When it's not engaged, we go back to our limbic system and our emotions are leading and guiding us. And they do not guide us with wisdom. They guide us with where they're at. Now, one of the things that happens is you engage more and more and more in something. Those emotions rest in your limbic system. And in some areas, it's like a freeway of how we respond. For me, it started with bullying. Not that I was a bully, I was bullied. I think my first memories are around age three or four. It went on for years and years and years. Going to six different elementary schools, two different junior highs, I was often a target for bullying. I wanted to be liked. The ways I tried to be liked often did not work out well. Then I entered junior high, and I remember in junior high, 
was not a pleasant experience in general. I think that's that way for most of us. Maybe you guys are having a better experience of junior high than we did. I really hope you are, because it was, it's not the years you want to go back to, but there's great things to learn. Try to find an upside in, in, uh, in, in that. But as I was being bullied, I, I finally, um, I hated going to the bus stop to go, because these two girls had these guys beat me up frequently. And I did not even know why. What I learned later is it stemmed from something that happened the summer before. I was walking home. We kind of lived up, up a hill. I was probably barefoot. I had some stones in my hand. And I was skipping them up the street to see how far I could get them to go as I'm going up. And I went by a neighbor's house, and a dog, their dog was there. It was a cute dog. And I kind of called it over, and it got up, and it dislodged a bunch of rocks it was lying on. And it had a chance. So it could only come so close. And then one of the people that lived there came out. So I just kept walking and throwing stones up the street. Well, she thought that I had been throwing stones at her dog. Because she saw some stones moving in the driveway from the dog move. Now, I look at the situation in my memory, it doesn't make any sense that the conclusion she drew, but she drew that conclusion for some reason. So I was, a, I was an animal abuser in her head, and therefore having people beat me up was justified. So it's not something I even did, but harm came against me in the world and I was receiving rejection. And I was receiving pain. And somewhere in the midst of eighth grade, there was a, another guy, a smaller guy, that used to always do stuff to me. And it's, he hit me in the stomach in the hallway and it just snapped and I threw my elbow as hard as I could into his back. And then he cornered me later and said, how dare you do that? And I picked him up, I threw him against the locker, and I basically let him know if he ever did anything to me again, I would rip him limb from limb and he would be a dead man. And he was like, oh, okay, we're good then. And he, always tre and he treated with me respect after that, which boggled my mind. But here's what I learned. In the midst of pain and rejection, if you get angry, it will stop. Now, that was good for stopping a bully, but that was not a good way to lead life. And as I continued to get older and dealt with these emotions which were too big for me, and I didn't know how to understand, I found that physical pain was much easier to deal with than emotional pain. So I would hit the floor, or I'd put my hand through the wall. And the pain in my knuckles was easier to focus on than the pain in my heart due to rejection. What I've learned that's amazing is that the brains, brains have a thing called plasticity. Which means that even though our brains stop developing at a certain point, they continue to reorganize themselves. Now, my way of thinking, which is that with anger and, or excuse me, with pain and rejection, go to anger and rage to cure that, that was a pathway in my mind that was very well established. And when my prefrontal cortex was turned off, if I was receiving negative input, I was the 10-year-old kid who was being bullied, even though I was three to five times bigger than the person that was doing it. A rational person looking at me and the other person would say, Mark, you are out of control. Why are you reacting the way you're reacting? Internally, I was in that emotional pathway driven by memories, hurt, and pain, so my responses made sense, and I couldn't understand why no one understood me. 
I knew I did not like the results and I kept trying to undo them and trying to undo them and I didn't have success. And then I found Christ and I figured that would make it easier. But I found I was still just as messed up. So we went through things. We sought help. I now had Jesus to help me with the process. And I had Ed Gillespie out of Restoration sitting across from me and he looked at me and said, Mark, you're not an angry man, but you're a man with an anger issue. And it was the first time somebody took this anger and rage, which I struggled with, and it didn't make it me. They made it something I was struggling with. And I was able to put it outside of me instead of inside of me. And in a while with counseling and with going through restoration a number of times, later some sozos, I got, each time I got iterative freedom to the point where I wasn't engaged in it anymore. To the point that I was, ex I was engaging in Romans 12 to the renewing of my mind. That instead of pathways where pain and led to anger, I create a new pathway which is saying, okay, if I'm feeling pain, I'm going to experience that pain. I'm going to articulate that I'm feeling rejected to my wife or my kids or that I, I'm not in a place I can deal with this right now. And I had to put safety mechanisms in place because I could all of a sudden feel my body changing. My prefrontal cortex at this point is turning off and I was being driven by my emotions. But I pre-programmed when that happened, I was going to stop. I was going to shut my mouth because I did not want to hurt the ones I loved the most. And I started establishing new pathways that actually dealt with the pain in my life, that actually dealt with the issues, that I started seeing myself differently, and I started seeing my wife or my kids not as a bully, but as somebody who was trying to say something, even if they were doing it in a poor manner. So I started receiving that differently. My mind was renewed. That process took time, and it was not an easy process. But in the end, it's not that I don't have the ability for anger and rage, but I have control through my choices in developing my character on whether or not that's going to get engaged. So my example isn't dealing with pornography or sexual addiction, but it's that same process. We have things in us that are hurt that need to be healed. So now listen to me. O sons, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your ways far away from her, far away from whatever it is that is drawing you through arousal or whatever to not be the man you, or woman you were designed to be. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, go to the house of a stranger, go to a house of an enemy. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Now, in the image before, my emotions rest in my brain, but that's not where I feel them. I feel them in my heart. I feel them in my gut. I feel them in here. Sometimes, you know, some of the good emotions, it's like a tingling in your fingertips. We feel them in our body, even though they, they are sourced out of our mind. 
I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I think all of you have experienced this feeling, this sense, this quiet desperation where you don't know the way out even. In fact, that's one of the things about pain is when we're experiencing it, it's hard to know that there's actually another side when the pain's going to be gone. Now, I played football, so I know that when you get your knuckles caught between two helmets, it hurts really, really bad. But actually, in five to ten minutes, the pain kind of stops and becomes a dull throb, and you can live with it. Emotional pain's the same way. That when it happens, it can be really intense, but you can get past it. But we don't have a lot of experience in actually grappling with it because we immediately go to medicating it in some way. Now Solomon shifts in this in Proverbs 5. He starts focusing on what God, how God has designed it in this comparison contrast. I've actually switched versions because I think the message handles this language a little bit better. Do you know the saying, drink from your own rain barrel? I can say this. Do you know the saying, drink from your own rain barrel, draw water from your own spring-fed well? It's true. Otherwise, you may one day come home and find your barrel empty and your well polluted. This is poetic metaphor. It's not talking about real water. It's talking about the things that sustain us in life. It's saying that in your relationships, are you, are you taking from and giving to what's important or were you going elsewhere and polluting that which is valuable? Are you taking your marriage and treating it instead of like a spring of fresh water, are you treating it like something you flush down the toilet? Where is your heart around that? Your spring water is for you and you only not to be passed around among strangers. Bless your flesh. Say this again, Mark. Bless your fresh flowing fountain. Enjoy your wife that you married as a young man. Lovely as an angel. Beautiful as a rose. Don't ever quit taking delight in her body. Never take her love for granted. Kristen and I have been married for... 16 years now. I have a friend who's been married for 50 years. They look a little bit different now than they did 50 years ago. There's this thing called time and gravity. But the reality is my wife knows all of me. She knows my strengths. She also knows my flaws. She knows when I can be a complete idiot. She knows my idiosyncrasies. There are some things about her that I, they kind of drive me a little bit nuts. But if she weren't there, the absence of them would create a longing in my heart. Because she knows me and she accepts me. Now, when I was teaching at the U of O for a while, there was, wonder, there was wonderful, beautiful co-eds that a lot of them like mature adult men because they've got wounds because their fathers didn't love them. They were not a temptation to me. Do you know why? Because they didn't know the real me. But my wife does. And the reality is I don't know their, their wounds. 
the exterior packaging is nowhere near as important as who we really are as people is the time and relationships we've built. I love the way my, my wife loves the Lord. It humbles me. And when she gets excited, it, for me, it lights up a room. It doesn't matter that she's 16 years older than I married him, and it won't matter when it's 36 years older. Because I know who she, are, who she is, who she ours, who she is, and I know who she is to me. And I know that God's designed things for us to do together, and I want to engage in that far more than anything else. And that's a choice I've made. And I've made choices that have changed my character. My personality is God-given. It was God-breathed in me. It doesn't really change that much, but my character does. My character can change. I can create new pathways in my emotional brain that says, I'm not going to do it the old way, I'm going to do it the new way. Why would you trade enduring intimacies for the cheap thrills of a whore or a dalliance with a promiscuous stranger? Mark well that God doesn't miss a move you make. He's aware of every step you take. I, I want to stop. Well, yeah, I want to stop here for a second. There's two sides to this coin. One is this is saying God knows every sin you commit, right? But here's the thing I want you to remember is whenever you're sinning, whenever you're in the midst of your besetting things and doing the things you hate to do or wish you didn't do, God has not left you. You may have turned your back on God, but he does not leave us when we're pursuing sin. He's standing right there next to us. He doesn't leave us when we're making bad choices. He's standing right there next to us. He's begging us to turn towards him because he's got a better way for us. But he didn't reject David when he committed adultery and killed his best friend. That we have this God whose mercy and grace triumphs over his justice, especially when we invite him into that process. The shadow of your sin will overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward for an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions trap you in a dead end. God is waiting for us. He's waiting for some people here to hit that dead end. Because when you get desperate enough, you turn and say, God, help me out of this pit. He is there to do that work. I know Kristen and I both went through restoration, and then we were part of a restoration team for a number of years. I don't know how many times I went through it, and every time God shifted something more. I've done multiple sozos for the same reason, because I have hurts and woundings that drive me to be someone I don't like. But God loves me and is willing to change me if I'm willing to partner with him and let him show me what he wants to do. And I will say this, The darkest, deepest things, the pains that drive me the most, when I look at them with God, I realize he's there and he's so gentle with it. That moment is some of the most painless healing I've done. It's doing it on my own that's been the biggest struggle. So my character is a choice. That's how we read Proverbs. We start to see what are the two choices we can make. 
Because sometimes in the midst of pain, we only see one way. But the truth is there's multiple ways. And if we can see both, we're going to engage it better. And we have the choice with this wonderful front part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex to choose to make a different decision. To choose to bring our emotions into submission to our will and our decisions. That it doesn't have to be emotions versus intellect. That my intellect can actually drive things and my emotions will align with that in the end. Not all the time, but most of the time. Because we are remade, we're renewed, and our character is refreshed into the image of who God designed us to be, which takes us away from who the world often tells us we are. The healing process takes time. I'm coming alongside some men right now that are struggling with sexual addiction and pornography. And it's going to take a good 90 days just to get to a place where they consistently be in sobriety because they're dealing in their brain with a chemical addiction. That they're in effect having to go through withdrawal, expose what the sources of this pain are so their brain can be remade. But within 90 days, I believe all of them will be in a place where they will be in sobriety. They'll be able to stop the behavior they don't want. But it's going to take two to five years for their mind to be completely renewed, to continue the process that the pathways in their limbic system, that the old ones that lead them to destruction become old abandoned paths. They may still be there, but they're abandoned. They're not walked down. And there's a new path that they have chosen that aligns with God's will and plans for their life that is now the preferred path. That's what a renewed mind looks like. That a person who's at the dead end, who's dark, in this Isaiah 61 church has found that their eyes have been opened, they are captives who are set free, and through the renewing of their mind, they are now becoming the oaks of righteousness that are rebuilding the city. So if the, if the um, prayer team could come forward to the sides, I want to invite you to something. If you've got a place of pain in your life, we would love to pray for you. I'm not asking you to reveal it all. Because the truth is, you've you got to be careful who you trust. But we want to come alongside you and help you find peace. We want to come and pray over you and invite the Holy Spirit and the Lord to participate in your healing. We want to ask God into the most painful places in your life and say, set these people free that they might become the men and women God designed them to be. So Lord, we just praise you. We thank you that you not only saved us from our sin, you have saved us from shame, that your design is to renew us and rebuild us into these incredibly diverse images of who you designed us to be. So we embrace who you say we are, Lord, not who we think we are from, from the pain and wounding of our past but who you say we are today. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.